So we'll have small groups tonight, and I'll talk a little bit about faith, conviction, moving into effort. And uh, as you know, we've been spending a lot of time on faith, confidence, because uh, this is what initiates this engine that I mentioned the first week. Well, I think we could call it the purification process, that whole part of the Eightfold Path. It's called Right Samadhi, which includes right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So this section of the path the Buddha describes, it's like an engine. It purifies the mind. It makes insight unavoidable. When the mind is balanced, clear, still, that mind sees things as they are. And that clear seeing then transforms one's view from a self-centered view to something beyond or different than a self-centered view, free of a self-centered view or empty of a self-centered view, maybe. So the whole point, the reason we've been spending a lot of time on faith is it's that inspiration that allows us to do the work of purification. And nothing really happens without nothing happens without work generally, and specifically in terms of this practice, nothing ha- happens. No insight arises. No transformation of one's mind happens without this effort to purify the mind. Basically, to go from a distracted, dissipated, scattered mind, which is our usual mind, to a mind that's really balanced. It's not being pulled out getting attached or identified with objects, like a thought is an object or a sight is an object. One of the things that came up on the retreat uh, this last weekend, we had a retreat, a residential retreat at, at a Holy Spirit Retreat Center. And I came up in one of the small groups and I talked about it one of the nights as well. This sense of commitment, you know, that powerful movement into action, like when we're committed, how commitment, instead of it's something that we do, like normally we think of commitment, I pick up a commitment and then I carry it around. (laughs) You know, this probably inevitably leads to difficulty in personal relationships. (laughs) If you feel committed and it has a sense of something you've picked up and have to lug around with you, then even though you might be in a committed relationship, we all long for the day when we could put down that load. So it might be useful, probably will be useful to change our attitude about commitment. So instead... Maybe imagine commitment as something we release into. Like we put down a load which allows for commitment. Like there's something we're holding that keeps us from a real commitment, a deep commitment in life. For example, we can hold on, a lot of us at times hold on to doubt. And that load, you know, doubt is heavy. Am I right? Am I wrong? Should I do this? Should I do this? Should I practice mindfulness of breathing? Or should I do open attention practice? Or 
loving-kindness practice or blend them all together. And then if we put that down, we might find that the mind commits. It just gives itself to something fully, completely, without wavering, allowing for what we might call right effort. So we can experiment with that idea um, like when you sit down and, and do your formal meditation. Think about that natural releasing into commitment, like a commitment to the set, like how wonderful it is to put on the load of having to think about the day, for example, having to figure out problems. Like we can put on that load and the particular training that we'll do, it's what we do when we put on the load of all of our distractions, all of our duties and responsibilities. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, this attitude that commitment and effort comes from letting go instead of picking up. Because how much actual effort does it take to be aware of the in-breath? I mean, what is the actual <laughs> slog involved? You know, what is the heavy weight involved in knowing the in-breath or knowing the out-breath? The real work is putting down distraction, is putting down the load. And that real work is just remembering that we can do that, that we can put it down. Whatever else we think we have to do now, the fact is we don't. We don't have to do it now. No one is going to be harmed by putting down the load for 45 minutes or whatever. So if you've missed this in the last several talks, the middle part of the five faculties is this engine. comes right out of the Eightfold Path taught by the Buddha. It is one section of the Eightfold Path called Right Samadhi. And again, it involves right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Those, of course, are the three middle of the five faculties. And they are what lead on to insight. And we get this over and over again in the teachings of the Buddha. So we need, the mind needs something to initiate this purification. This purification happens when the mind puts down a load. The load of distraction, the load of worry, the load of comparing. So we need to be inspired to put down the load. The load is familiar to us. So we have to be inspired. We put down the load. We experience some purification. Things settle down. The mind becomes clear. Insight arises. Wisdom develops. And that inspires more faith. More uh, inspired faith. More direct faith. Unshakable faith to put on the load again in the next moment, in the next moment. I don't know who said this. Just a note that I had written down a long time ago. It could have been my words or maybe it's somebody else's. 
but I had it in this article. I'd written a note in this article uh, that I sent you in the second email. Um, the article by Ajahn Jayasaro, one of the senior Western monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition, now living in Thailand. And he wrote that article, uh, the quest, A Quest for Faith, I think it's called. Uh, um, anyway, and this note I wrote says, for those with much skepticism, remembering, rejecting, oh, for those with much skepticism, remember, rejecting something without investigation is just as much an act of blind faith as taking on a belief without careful consideration. So that hesitation, that unwillingness to put down the load, that's just the activity of blind faith. We have blind faith that we should be holding the load, that we should be thinking about this and worrying about that and doubting and regurgitating something from the past. That's all an act of faith, that somehow that leads somewhere. Right? Why else would we be doing that, worrying, worrying endlessly, thinking endlessly, unless we thought, unless we had faith that it leads somewhere? So we're already involved in faith. It's really more, the, the practice of faith is really more grounding it in direct experience like letting the inspiration come from experience. So let me read a little from Ajahn Jayasaro's article, Faith on the Quest, it's called. I think I said it wrong the first time. Faith on the Quest, and I sent that link out today. No matter how much money people have and how well endowed they are with worldly blessings, wherever they go, they are still stuck fast within the realm of the senses. No matter how exalted an aesthetic experience, nobody is ever going to be able to see with their eyes anything other than a form that arises and passes away. And a little later he says, is this really a satisfactory way to spend a human existence? Is there anything more to life than pursuing things that come and go? And later, humble acknowledgement that we don't know is the motor for the search. We cherish a faith in the ultimate value of the search for a direct experience of truth. A little later says, nobody can prove that there is such a thing as enlightenment. And so if we don't have faith that there is, our practice is unlikely to go very far. Faith clarifies goal, focuses our effort, and fills us with energy. And remember last week I went through that article by Ajahn Tanisaro where he talks about, uh, you know, some faith you can just take from seeing, but other faith requires that you act, like we have to investigate in order to have faith before it makes sense. We have to actually do something with the mind. Ultimately, it is wisdom rather than faith that moves mountains, but it is faith that impels us to move them in the first place and faith that sustains us through the inevitable frustrations that dog our efforts.
one of the real loads we like to carry. I can't remember if I mentioned this last week. I don't think so. Uh, we like to carry the load that somehow, even if we have a lot of faith that these teachings make sense or that um, I'm inspired by them, that there can be a lot of faith in the idea, but not for me. I'm too distracted. I have ADHD or I have um, a busy life. I have children. Um, I started too late. I have a lot of body pain when I sit. Um, I don't have any friends that practice. I had some trauma my early life and that pain comes up when I'm sitting. We have a lot of, it's too hot in the room. (laughs) We have a lot of reasons why not for me. And it, it can feel really compelling because we have seen very clearly how our mind is. So we have a lot of evidence that the conditioned mind isn't suitable for enlightenment, right? But this is misunderstanding the path because the conditioned mind doesn't become enlightened. And you see how that really screws us up because we think we're doing something wise, like we're reflecting on the tendency to be defensive or aversive or doubtful or needy. And that we use that then as evidence to keep from releasing into commitment. It's so compelling, you know, as we review the facts. How could this mind, this crazy mind, I mean, isn't it crazy? If it isn't, if you don't notice how the conditioned mind is crazy, it's probably because you're not paying attention. But just because it's crazy, actually, it, it's a misunderstanding to think that prevents awakening. Because we're not becoming, the, the conditioned mind isn't what becomes perfect. What's perfect, in a sense, is the letting go or letting it be. That's where the perfection develops. It's a perfect letting things be, not a perfect mark, this conditioned personality expressing itself perfectly. And it's not to say that the personality doesn't get better as we bring more mindfulness to our lives. Hopefully, well, but in a way it's like icing on the cake. It's not the point. The point is to understand what the personality is not to make the personality perfect. And what we mean by understanding what the personality is or the conditioned mind is, we're understanding that identification with it can be dropped. That we don't have to maintain this load, this belief, that's me. That can be perfectly dropped. That's the perfection we develop in practice is the perfect letting go of identification with what comes and goes. The mind, the conditioned mind, experience, all of this comes and goes. So this is Ajahn Jayasara. He says, our discouragement in the practice frequently comes from trying to imagine how this limited eye could possibly realize the unlimited. 
How could this bounded self realize the unbounded? Having posed the question based on a false premise that I is real, we naturally conclude with a false answer that my realizing Nibbana can never happen. In other words, how could little old me ever realize something so marvelous? The gap seems too wide. Well, that's exactly the point, isn't it? This person doesn't realize the truth. Rather, it's through understanding what this person is that truth is revealed. This realization, in the words of the Buddha, upturning something that has been overturned. It is a shining of light in the darkness. Nothing new is created. What occurs is a radical reappreciation of experience and recognition of something that has always existed. The deathless element is also birthless element. It is not something that is brought into existence. Instead, those things which conceal or envelop it are removed, or as I've been talking tonight, put down, released. I encourage you to read the article. It's not very long. I think you'll find it helpful. He speaks with real conviction. (laughs) So I want to spend a few minutes before we break into small groups going through the short map that Andy Olensky sent out, or I sent out from Andy Olensky's journal, Insight Journal, which is now just an online journal. They no longer print it. And this is from the 2006 spring edition of the journal. And Andy is uh, dissecting a particular sutta from the Middle Link Discourses. So the parts here, the important parts, he starts off by saying, and this is some translation of what's in that sutta, that discourse, there are five things which, there are five things that may turn out in two different ways here and now. What five? Something may be accepted out of faith, yet may be empty, hollow, and false. Something else may not be well accepted out of faith, yet may be factual, true, and unmistaken. If a person has faith, One preserves truth when one says, my faith is thus, but does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, everything else is false. So a kind of fundamentalism. Because I have faith that this is true, we don't presume that uh, it's absolute. It's just our sense that this is true. And the Buddha calls that preserving We preserve truth when we hold that humility. That that's the appropriate stance with faith, with anything we approve, with oral tradition, with reasoned consideration and reflective acceptance of a view. So this is the whole um, spectrum. Here, faith, we should probably think of in terms of initial faith or blind faith, where we hear something and then it sort of meets our approval. It fits some oral tradition, like wise people talk about it. We think about it. We reason consideration. You know, it makes sense. Reflective acceptance of a view. We've reflected on it for some time. But all through this development, you know, the development of confidence, we hold this truth, which is... uh, this is my faith, this is what I prove of, this is what I hear, this is what I've reflected on and makes sense, but I understand uh, this is just my faith or just my view. I'm not rejecting everything. I'm not saying it's definitely 
correct. So he quotes again, he says, in this way there is a preservation of truth, but as yet there is no discovery of truth. Because the discovery of truth, of course, would be when we see directly. So then we can actually say, this is true. And that is not true. But it's not fundamentalism because what we're saying is, this is what I have experienced. Now, people can say that having not actually experienced it. And, you know, it's easy to fool ourselves. So the Buddha explains, in what way is there the discovery of truth? So we go from having to preserve truth by maintaining humility. My faith is thus, but that does not yet come to definite conclusion. But he does not come to definite conclusion. Only this is true, anything else is wrong. So to go beyond that initial understanding or initial faith, he explains, the Buddha explains, and this is all very commonsensical. And I think as you hear this, translate it to our situation. So the way he describes it, a teacher may be living in some village or town. A person goes to him or her and investigates in regard to three kinds of states, greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? So the person's going to go investigate the teacher. You know, Is there any states I see in that teacher that seem to be arising out of greed, hatred, or delusion. While not knowing he or she may say, I know, why not seeing he or she may say, I see, or he or she might urge others to act in a way that would lead to their harm and suffering for a long time. That's pretty pragmatic. So there's a teacher, and the first thing you do, instead of listening to them, is you watch them, you investigate, you get a sense like, is this heart, you know, this mind, a mind or heart that I'd like to be living out of? Or is it tight with greed, tight with fear, tight with aversion, deluded, disconnected? And then, of course, if one, if when one investigates, you come to know there is no such states based on greed, hatred, or delusion in this teacher. The bodily and verbal behavior of this teacher are not those of one affected by greed, hatred, and delusion. And the teachings of that teacher are profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, right? Outside of my box. Like that's why we need a teacher. If all we're learning is already in our box, already in our worldview, then all we're getting is someone confirming our own views. We, what we need a teacher for are teachings, you know, because in a sense, in an important sense, the Buddha is our teacher. And uh, those people sitting on platforms are people doing their best to interpret or to articulate the teachings of the Buddha based on their own experience to some degree and based on the teachings of the Buddha and other people who've been practicing these teachings. So we, we want teachings that are out of the box. So if that's the case and there's a sense that the teachers, this sort of lineage of people sharing their practice is clean of greed and delusion and aversion to some degree or to a large degree or maybe completely, then filled with faith, one visits one and pays respect to one, right? The teacher. 
So when we come together to our Buddhist studies class or you come back to your book at home or your online Dharma talk or wherever you're getting your out-of-the-box teachings, then we want to keep showing up. I mean, we've done the investigation. We have the initial faith that I don't see a lot of greed, aversion, and delusion surrounding where these teachings are coming from. So I'm going to I'm going to act out enough, act enough to show up. I'm going to go visit my book or my Dharma talks or my local Buddhist Dharma center. Filled with faith, one visits, pays respects. Having paid respect, one gives ear, right? Listens. Giving ear, one hears the Dharma. Having heard the Dharma, one memorizes it. One examines the meaning of the teachings that have been memorized. When these are examined, when these teachings are examined, their meaning examined, one gains a reflective acceptance of those teachings, right? They become integrated with what's already understood. That's that reflection where we're taking the new map, the -the out-of-the-box map, and we're connecting it with what we already know, our own experience. Does it fit? It does fit. So one, when one has gained a reflective acceptance of those teachings, zeal springs up. I bet most people in this room have had that experience of reflecting deeply in the teachings, reflecting, connecting it with your own experience, and feeling the energy rise. Wow, this makes sense with my experience. And it's, it's a real energizing experience to see that that someone can take something as amorphous as our cumulative experience and map it out in a way that really helps us understand our actual experience, makes it clear, makes our own experience more clear to us. And that's the zeal. When zeal has sprung up, one applies one's will. Right? We're, when we feel that zeal, we want to do something to set these teachings in motion. Having applied one's will, one scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, one, here it's translated as strives. But I, I think here maybe a better word might be commitment. Having scrutinized, one's ready to get married to this way of being, you know, this way of re- relating or working with the mind. Like commitment to awakenness or commitment to being present in life. And then lastly, resolutely striving, one realizes with the body the ultimate truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. In this way, there is the discovery of truth. But as yet, there is no final arrival at truth, right? So there's real insight, but the insight hasn't been developed completely. The final arrival at that truth lies in the repetition development and cultivation of these same things. And this is really important because people have real insight. I feel in moments I've had real insight, but the insight hasn't been completely developed. And there's a great line from the person who brought Buddhism to Korea way back, 13th or 14th century, Chinul was the person's name. And the phrase is something like, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So there are insights, and then there's the integration of the insight. And so this is exactly what the Buddha is saying here. 
the final arrival at truth lies in the repetition, development, and cultivation of these same things. And this is really this middle part of the five faculties, just described in a different way. So instead of talking about effort, mindfulness, samadhi, concentration, he's talking about these things that are listed here. And that's what he's going to talk about in this next section. He says, the Buddha says, what is most helpful for the final arrival at truth? Striving, scrutiny, application of the will, will, zeal, reflective acceptance, examination of the meaning, memorizing, hearing the Dhamma, giving ear, paying respect, visiting, faith. Now, without faith, we don't even check out the teacher. Don't even look. In the end, uh, he mentions striving. And I just want, before we break, I'll read a, a quote from Sarah Dowring's article that I sent you the link for. She has an article, a transcription of a talk she gave on the five faculties. And this is her section on what she had to say about effort. To do this is really a very delicate balancing act. On the one hand, hard work is needed in the attempt to keep paying attention. On the other hand, there's nothing to do because awareness is already present. It's just that we've been distracted. So that's the load that needs to be put down. She goes on and says, right effort is not striving. Striving leads to clinging. It reinforces the sense of self and can be very painful. Right effort isn't trying to get anything for there's nothing to get. It's not trying to penetrate something and go deeper and deeper. Rather, it's the effort to listen with greater sensitivity. It's a soft receptivity, just total surrender, receiving and welcoming whatever is here. When effort is balanced without any strain, there is no sense of I. There is no sense of I should do this. Rather, there's just the willingness to do. Out of that willingness, there comes a more and more constant flow of energy. This quality of energy is bold and courageous. A Pali word describes it as the state of the heroic ones. The word is virya. Actually, Sanskrit, you know, is similar to the European languages, Indo-European languages. So virile is the same root as uh, virya, which is this word for effort, one of the words for effort, the state of the heroic, heroic ones. It gives patience and perseverance in the face of difficulty. If pain arises, the heat of the energy burns away fear and makes it possible to do what ordinarily is very difficult to do, to go right to the center of the pain. So in the small groups tonight, I thought um, you might reflect on, look at your history of commitments. What were the antecedents? What allowed the mind to make commitment in your life? Think about wholesome commitments. (coughs) What were the consequences that came out of wholesome commitment in your life? You can think about this in terms of work, commitments at work, maybe academics when you were back in school, spiritual practice, commitments involving overcoming difficulties, addictions, social issues, political issues that you were committed to. So talking with your small group, fellow small group people about a commitment, how, what supporting con- conditions did the commitment come out of? What 
transformation happened because the heart was committed. It put down the load of distraction and it was just there with that commitment, 100% or whatever percent. So that's something you might talk about. Another thing that might be of interest to share in the small group is just how um, by making the initial effort, sometimes in this tradition it's called launching effort, to do something, it releases a lot of energy. So just that breaking through the crust of resistance and how once we do that, a lot of energy can get released. And almost, not almost, but at times at least, it becomes an effortless kind of energy. There's a lot of efforting happening, a lot of energy happening, but it seems like it is the cause for itself. It isn't doesn't have the sense of somebody has to keep making the effort happen. You know, like when we're really having a lot of joy in whatever it is we're doing. That joy provides the energy to do what we're doing. So you can talk about that, how you got to that place where the energy was self-reinforcing. Another one last thought... um, is just to share uh, different qualities of energy from that breakthrough energy, like to initiate something. It's called launching energy. The sort of courageous, fearless energy when we're facing something unknown, something really difficult, and a willingness to stick with it. And then the third kind I, I sort of mentioned recently in the last comment, that energy that is steady and it somehow has a feedback mechanism self-reinforcing and actually increasing and just steady you know like you're on the interstate going through Wyoming it's flat you shift into the fifth gear cruise control and you're just humming along the system is working really well and so the effort in a way all the effort is there is just to maintain the awareness that it's all working well so there's this Awareness that that the uh, system has its own integrity, its own cohesion, maintaining itself, and so we're just aware that it's taking care of itself, trusting that it's taking care of itself. So just reflect on what might make sense around faith, around effort, anything I said tonight. And we'll break into small groups in just a few seconds so you can reflect. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.